All right, well, uh, this was another unannounced live stream and a number of items that I want to discuss today. Uh, I wanted to get this out there before the men's retreat because uh, tomorrow I leave probably around 10, 30, 11 in the morning to go pick up Dr. Fuller from the airport and we're heading to the retreat and everything starts tomorrow, tomorrow evening and we'll go through uh, the morning of Sunday. And I know a number of you are flying in. Um, it's going to be fun. So uh, I hope that those who weren't able to make it this year can make it next year. That's right. I said next year because I'm already thinking in my head what can be done to make this more accessible. Should we do a conference? Should we, I mean, the sky's the limit. Uh, there's so many things that we could do. Uh, so anyway, thinking through what that might look like because, uh, frankly, the Adirondacks is an inconvenient location for most people that probably listen to this podcast. And the fact that so many of you are coming, I think we have 83 people coming, is just uh, beyond what I had originally thought. So a few of you have not gotten my emails, even though you've signed up for the retreat, just just a couple. And so if you're hearing this, please reach out to me. I think the wrong email was entered when you signed up. And so I'm getting my mail service kicking back some emails saying, this person's email doesn't exist. And uh, I, I know that person's coming. So... Uh, Anyway, we're going to have a great time. I was actually just looking at hikes yesterday for Saturday, and there's three of them that are really cool. One is a waterfall. One is a scenic view. It's You climb up a, a mountain, and then the other one's a cave. And I'm having to choose now. Which one do I want to do? Can I do all three of them? Would that work? So anyway, looking forward to that. And uh, let's see, what else? Oh, uh, I for, almost forgot about this, but I wanted to let you know. I got a text message uh, from... Uh, one of our good friends outside of Louisville uh, for the Reformation War Room, Bert Lace, texted me. And at uh, the their church in Shelbyville, they're doing a Reformation War Room, which I spoke at earlier. Was it? Now I'm trying to remember. Was it this year or last year? I think it was this year, but it was earlier in the year. Feels like a lifetime ago, yet in some ways like yesterday, but. Anyway, they're doing another one, and uh, the registration closes for not on October 31st, and also another great men's event. Obviously, I'm not going to be there, but I figured I'd just let you all know uh, if you're interested. I'll try to remember to put the link in the info section, but I'm sure you can uh, go check it out uh, as well. If you, I'm sure if it, it'll pull it up on a search engine, or if you go on Facebook, um, and if you find Burt Lace, then uh, I think you can probably find out more about that. So I figured I'd at least mention that. Uh, what else? Let's see. I don't think there's any other announcements before we jump into things. Um, in fact, I used Reformation Church. I just thought of this. I used them as an example, a positive example, at the Jesus and Politics Conference last week. Uh, because there's a number of churches that I've just been to that are really just kicking it up a notch. They're not satisfied to just see Drag Queen Story Hour and all the various degeneracies happen in their community without responding in some way. And so I appreciate them. All right, let's, uh, let's get into this. And you know what, <laughs> I'm just going to read this story because they have an advertisement I really don't want to show you. Isn't that a shame? I mean, sometimes conservative websites have that too. And uh, I've had an, on a few occasions, people have told me that John, the video that uh, is being used for your YouTube advertising isn't good or something. And I've gone and I've tried to do as much as I can uh, to adjust what's allowed and what's not. I haven't had complaints in a while. But it's a shame that happens. I'm not sure if that's, I'm not sure whose responsibility that ultimately is. But I can't really show you the story in my good judgment here. Uh, the story, though, is from the New York Post, October 27th. New York Post is now considered a conservative magazine. Can you believe that? I don't really buy that, but they're, they're just not as kooky as other outlets. The headline, though, is De Dearborn Dads Get School Board to Buckle Providing an Example to America's Men. Providing an example to America's men. That's right. And this is a, a story. And for those who aren't familiar, Dearborn, Michigan is overwhelmingly majority uh, Muslim. And uh, I'll just start reading. The most perverse in our society will always seek out the most vulnerable and lately literary perversion has crept its ways into schools and libraries nationwide by means of progressive influence and paid for with our tax dollars. Well, that's true. We know this. These perverse actors have attempted to weaponize our parental instincts 
to protect our children from anything age-appropriate by claiming our object, uh, objections are either politically or relig religiously motivated. For the last few weeks, Dearborn, Michigan has become another battleground as parents showed up and forced to school board meetings in fierce opposition to books being available. And by the way, I've seen videos of this, and it's unlike any of the other protests against this immoral behavior or sexually explicit images and books that you've seen across the country. Typically, I think what you see is Moms for Liberty, and it's generally moms, right? That's who ends up on Tucker Carlson that night. That's who ends up making headlines as some mom who made a really good speech against what's happening in the school. But I've had this thought for a long time. Why is it the moms? And it's nothing against moms. Moms should be involved. But where are the dads? Where are the dads? In fact, I would argue it's actually their responsibility more than the moms. If the dads aren't going to do it, then I understand. But this is a dad's responsibility uh, to go down to the, the, the meeting. If, if your child is attending a school... And I would like to argue if, if it's possible, in most places in this country, you're going to want to homeschool your kids. But I understand extenuating circumstances and all that. All right, so your, your child's going to a school and they're pushing bad stuff. It's the father's responsibility. They're the ones that are, in, in, biblically speaking at least, it's their responsibility to be in charge of the education of uh, their children. And uh, if they want to use you know, mechanisms for that, if they uh, want to oversee uh, the uh, tutors uh, or, you know, whatever, they, that's fine, in my opinion. I, I don't see a problem there as long as they're involved. But but it is their responsibility to, to train up the child in the way he should go. So anyway, that being said, this is to our shame, Christians. <laughs> uh, it, uh, it got shut down. And uh, let's see, uh, I'm going to read, I'm going to skip ahead a little here. It wasn't just fathers who were outraged enough to come and express their opposition to explicit books on local on school shelves. The community's elders also made their presence known. Masculine, righteous indignation permeated these meetings as men felt schools were encroaching on their community's children's innocence. For the first time since the start of these nationwide school battles, I saw men rallying together to make it clear that any action to exploit their children's vulnerability will receive an equal and opposite reaction. Despite being falsely accused as anti-LGBT because of their Muslim faith, they remain steadfast in insisting that sexual perversion, regardless of orientation, is unacceptable and, that, and without hesitation, uh, they'll fall on the sword of slander to protect their children. Now, this is so frustrating in one sense to me because, ah, why isn't this happening in other places? You know, there's a uh, community near me, Monroe, New York. It's not far. And in this particular community... A lot of uh, Hasidic Jewish people have moved up from New York City over time, but it really wasn't that long, I suppose. It wasn't a very long period of time. And they've pretty much taken over the school board. They've, they're, on, they're, they're controlling, to some extent, they're at least influencing the town. And a lot of the locals don't care for that because this is very sudden. This is, it, it changed uh, many things about the community there. But one of the things they do, and it's one of the first things that I, I, I just was told this from because I used to do some repair work and I go to people's houses in this area sometimes. And I was told this, that they said, the, you know, the first thing they do when they come to the community, they, they take over the school board. I thought, really? That's the first thing? Yeah, that's, the, that's one of the first things they do. And I thought, you know, it's so interesting to me how evangelicals in particular, if you look at major evangelical publications, how they're so suspicious of power. They don't know what to do with power. Power is associated with bad things. You must be bad if you want power, uh, because as Christians, we shouldn't be about power. And other communities, including religious communities, don't feel that way at all. In fact, they go for the jugular as soon as it's available to them. Uh, and you, I know that uh, I've heard this about countries that are teetering on whether or not they're going to be Muslim or Christian or secular or what. And as soon as the Muslims have a majority, I mean, they just, they don't show the same kind of, uh, they don't have the gentleman's agreement, let's say, just say, with uh, other faith groups. And they'll take the power and they'll use it and they'll wield it. And that is one of the things that has, I think, and it still is, for some reason, holding Christians back. And in the Western world, but also in the United States of America in particular. Places where we have clear majorities, 
of people who agree with good biblical policies or policies that are at least more biblical, they, they don't show up as much to actually fight for these things. And there's, I think, a whole bunch of things that probably could be used to explain this, but it's a problem. And I think that problem is starting to, I think things are starting to, at least in some places, go the other way. I'm going to show you a little example of that later in the podcast, but I'm positive about it. But it's just, uh, it's interesting. It's Muslims. Now, uh, I wanted to show you this too, because I saw this, and this isn't uh, on the high school or elementary school level, but within the last few days, uh, the New York Post also uh, reported this, Penn, uh, Pennsylvania State University cancels event with Proud Boys founder Gavin McGinnis over threats of violence. And if you watch the video, it was him and it was another guy, uh, Alex Stein. If you watch the video of Alex Stein on campus, it is just mind-numbing. <laughs> These protesters who show up and just screaming, and he makes fun of them, but it's like, it's funny to a certain point. It's not funny anymore. These guys are spitting at him, these, and he wants to mock them, but they're very serious, and they're very dangerous, and you could, you, you just can see the hate in their eyes. If they, the laws were not such that they would be severely punished, perhaps, for murdering someone, you just could see it in their eyes. These are the kind of people that would do it. I mean, what's holding them back, uh, if not a police presence? Unfortunately, a police presence was not uh, was not around for the next story, which I want, to, which is pretty similar. Let's see if I can. I think I have things out of order here a little bit. Here it is. Okay, I found it. This uh, was a Turning Point USA event. At, uh, le at, where was it, uh, UC Davis. Leftist militants attack conservative students and use terror tactics to shut down Turning Point USA event. And this, it, it, it's unfortunate because in both cases, the conservatives, for safety reasons, had to fold. They had to back off and say, well, in this case, it was the police aren't going to protect us. So we have to uh, make sure that we're safe, and that means shutting down the event. And that's very sad. This happens quite a bit on our side of things. And one of the things, though, Turning Point USA, I, you know, it's, in my opinion, Turning Point USA is kind of, it's, a, it's, it's not an extremely small tent. It's, it's a medium-sized tent, I would suppose. But it's, there's enough room in there for libertarians. And uh, it's, what's the good word for it? I guess spring break conservatism. I get that impression from Turning Point, kind of. I remember in 2020 when I was at CPAC, the Turning Point booth is one that had all the rainbow flags at CPAC. It's like, they're conservative? Okay. All that to say, Turning Point I would consider to be very mild. As far as, on, think, think of conservatism as a spectrum, if you want to think of it that way. And Turning Point is very much in the moderate. Uh, for conservatism, I'm not saying they're moderates, but for what conservatism is today, they would be very careful. They would, you know, we just want free speech, um, but not really anything. I mean, who was speaking? Who was the speaker here? Uh, let's see what it says. Stephen Davis, I think, was the speaker. I'm not even sure who that is, really. Maybe I've seen stuff from him, and I'm not familiar. Um, but all it was was that he he, he didn't believe – he's a black guy. He doesn't believe in systemic racism, and that's enough. Um, I mean, they just were going overblown on this, that uh, Turning Point USA is platform Kyle Rittenhouse, and that means they're they're crazy, and, and they're Nazis, basically. And you got to – I mean, this is how – if if things are this bad, we're Turning Point USA, who I would consider from a, from a standard going back like 50 years, they'd be on the left in my mind. Uh, in many respects, at least on many issues, then it's like, what? <laughs> There's no compromise. There's just no compromise. You can't out. What you can't do is moderate yourself enough for these people. There's no way to negotiate with them. And negotiation's off the table. It just is. Uh, you deviate one iota, and you are a hater. And we just have to be honest with where we're at. This is, these are the conditions of our universities. This is where they're at. The police are scared. Bullies have taken over the institutions. And honestly, we just need to stop funding them. 
as much as we possibly can. We need to, as much as we can. And I know that different circumstances are different, but send your kids to a university that doesn't have these issues, <laughs> if one still exists. Uh, do online education if possible. I mean, just, I mean, I know for some jobs you have to have that certification to get to the next level. But if you don't, then don't even go. That it's it's such a waste of money uh, to to even pay for uh, what most students at least are getting at these places. But uh, it's just interesting to me. The Muslims very aggressive in promoting their articulating and really holding people's feet to the fire to uh, at least not go against their beliefs. The secularists, the social justice warriors who are religious by nature, that's the whole point of my book, Christianity and Social Justice, I'm showing this is a religion. They're aggressive, right? And who are the mousy ones? They tend to be the Christians. They tend to be the Christians. They're constantly signaling, at least I'm talking about upper echelon evangelical Christianity. They're constantly signaling how they're not a threat. These folks aren't afraid to be threats. And I would submit to you, I don't think bullying's right as far as like, I don't think obviously spitting in people's faces, and I'm not advocating for that at all. But uh, I, I would submit to you that Christianity is not this weak, pathetic thing that we're seeing so often today. If you study cr- church history, and it, even if you just study the Bible, you'll find many examples of mighty men. David's mighty men were commended. For, for how many people they killed. I mean, that's, you know, in battle. Uh, Jesus was a very masculine figure. I mean, he was constantly going to war, whether it was verbal or in the case of, you know, one, one instance with a whip, with the scribes and Pharisees. And he didn't take stuff from them. He wasn't signaling to them about how he wasn't a threat and they didn't understand and I'm not going to challenge Rome. He just didn't even... Jesus was a man's man. He, he had his... Uh, his purpose, his message, and he didn't deviate from it. And he didn't let people bully him from from proclaiming it. He was shrewd at times. He passed through the crowd when it wasn't his time. He would he would take precautions, but he he did not ever back down from his message. He didn't try to neutralize it in any way, dissolve it, uh, make sure that it, it that he said five hundred qualifications before he got to it. He was just straight. And the apostles were like that, and that's one of the reasons that uh, they were killed. You remember, uh, remember Paul in Ephesus, you know, great as Artemis of the, uh, of the Ephesians, and they're all chanting against him. And he wants to go in there. He wants to go talk to them. And, and uh, luckily, well, good for him, I guess, at that point, the, the, the Christians in the area said, no, 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 you're not going out there. But th- that's the heritage we have. We, we have reformers. We have uh, just... Man, uh, explorers and generals and, and just all kinds of masculine figures in Christian heritage. And we are, uh, I don't know, I just feel like we're doing, we're, it's to their shame in some ways. It's just like, if they could see what we're doing uh, right now, and I say we, not myself, but I'm saying like in general, evangelicals in this country, I think they'd just be like, that doesn't really resemble the kind of Christianity that we were advocating for. So anyway, uh, that's what's going on there. And I thought, maybe I'll just get to this now. I thought this was a brilliant idea. And I I just want to give you a little bit of a a positive, something positive to say here. So this is something, I saw this, it's such a good idea. All right, Michael Foster posted this on Facebook. He said, you know, we Christians should start pushing for a Bible story hour at our local library. We Christians should start pushing for a Bible study hour. And as I understand it now, there's a bunch of Christians who have taken this idea, and that's exactly what they're doing. And I'm I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, man, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> why, why did it take this long? It's That's a brilliant idea. Yeah, that's a great, if you have the resources, do it. And it doesn't take a lot of resources to do that, right? So if you're upset about drag queen story hour, then do Bible study hour. Uh, Bible story hour at your local library and then see what they do. <laughs> you can't do that. Well, you, you can do gra- drag queen story hour. So why can't we do by, you know, you're going to get it. You might even get drag queen story hour shut down because now they have to, they have a dilemma. If we let them do it, man, we're going to let these Christians come in. What a good idea. 
And uh, so I just want to commend that to you. And just I want to say this too. I'm encouraged by something. I just shared with you all this negative stuff, but I'm really encouraged on a smaller level. I'm starting to see something that I haven't seen in the last few years. I am starting to see younger Christians, especially millennials in particular, doing, I'm not saying all of them, but in general, doing a better job on the conservative side, on the conservative side, doing a better job on fighting and sticking together and being loyal and not fracturing constantly and not looking to their right to see who they can dump overboard to appease someone on the left as a human sacrifice. Uh, and, and so they will not get canceled. You know, let's let's join with the rage mob and cancel that person or let's not defend them. I'm seeing something starting that I'm very encouraged by. And honestly, this book is bringing it out. Some this book is bringing it out. Stephen Wolf's book, The Case for Christian Nationalism. And it's revealing something I knew was there. A lot of the, the guys that I'm thinking of, Stephen Wolf, uh, I'm thinking of social media guys presence, uh, Thomas Accord. You see William Wolf out there. You see Josh Abatoy, an American reformer. You see Megan Basham and what she's doing with the Daily Wire. Uh, you just see you know, the whole American reformer group, to be honest with you, uh, is they're just doing a good job as far like they're not operating in the ways that I am used to seeing people on our side, side operate, which has been so frustrating to me for so long. And and I just happened to, to realize that most of the people that have been leading the charge on our side, it's not even a charge, it's a gentleman's retreat. But most of those people that I'm that I'm thinking of tend to be more uh, boomers. And I don't I don't know exactly what accounts for this. But it's more millennials who seem to be, at least the conservative ones on our side in the social justice debate who are active on social media, they are more aggressive. They are not willing to meet the demands of the left. They're not, they realize this isn't a good faith argument. They know the other side isn't actually interested in negotiation or in resolving any differences. They're not being taken in by that. They're willing to support those who have bravery as opposed to those who look good or have a certain image uh, in in the public square, uh, they are, and, and they're also, I think, asking questions that generally, and, and I'm going to do a video on this at some point, but generally those, and not everyone, I know a lot of baby boomers are listening who are I love dearly and not, please understand as I say this, this is not a pejorative against boomers, but in general, um, baby boomers, post-World War II conservatives, we'll put it that way if, if you like that term better, there's just a lot of things that I think post-World War II conservatives took for granted. A lot of uh, Christian civilization that they just assumed that they didn't really totally understand what it was based on, but they were living off of its inertia. And and they have a loyalty to this kind of liberal order that's that's at best, uh, it, it's, it's temporary. Read, read, there's a great book I read not long ago called The Demon and Democracy, which is so good. Um, and it'll it'll expose a lot of what I'm talking about. But the millennials that I see starting to engage and becoming and they're rising in prominence. A lot of these the, the weaker leaders who haven't really um, they just haven't demonstrated any progress towards reaching the goal. They've their their social media platforms are starting to diminish their their leader. They're, I think people are starting to see that's not really the leader we want. And a lot of, uh, especially younger guys, though, who are more aggressive are have been waiting in the wings, and they're starting to get their moment. And I'm just really happy to see this. We're at the very beginning, and a lot of things could happen, so I don't know exactly where everything's going, but I'm just very positive right now on where things are heading. I see a lot more optimism, in my opinion, especially in evangelicalism, than I've had in a long time. On the political front uh, and on the just the social justice front, understanding what that is, identifying it, uh, those who are pushing it, uh, making naming their names, uh, you know, those who are reluctant to go along or that are being dragged along. Uh, I see movement there even, pe people who have been even previously pushing social justice who are now seeing, wow, there's a momentum change. And I need to, if I want to survive in my career, I got to be on the other side of this. I got to be against social justice. I got to be for uh, whatever this Christian nationalism is, it seems to have momentum. 
So anyway, I've been critical of using that term Christian nationalism, but I, I'm separating that from the movement. The, whatever this movement is, it's something positive is happening. And again, I don't know where it's all leading, but uh, I'm seeing on the local level uh, also very tangible uh, examples of this uh, at local churches who are just saying, you know what, we're not going to do the conference circuit anymore. You know what, we're going to produce some of our own materials for training and discipling. We're not just getting our cues from quote-unquote Big Eva on all this stuff. Um, you know what, we're going to get back to reading people who have been dead for 100 years <laughs> because they they actually have better insights than what's uh, trending at the, the Christian bookstore. So um, I want to encourage you with that uh, just a little bit. All right, uh, what else? There's, there's, there's definitely a bunch of other stuff. And I want to talk. Before we get to it, though, let me just look at your comments and, and see if there's any questions or anything uh, that I can answer. I would love to answer. Wow, a lot of you streaming. Uh, 72 right now. I, I don't announce these, and I usually do them at inconvenient times for most people that are working. So happy to see 72. Uh, let's see. John, you have to comment on Woke Preacher Clips' latest post of Rachel Den Hollander with Russell Moore. Hmm. I've probably seen it, but I haven't seen the Woke Preacher clips. I wonder if it's a recent. I'll, I'll just have to check it out. Uh, <laughs> you don't have to, but you should. Okay, I'll, I'll check it out. Uh, let's see. Um, us dads are... This is... Well, it's a good point. Us dads are try, busy trying to stay afloat in this economy. I'd like to do more, but I feel overwhelmed. Can I just say something to you guys who... I understand. If you listen to podcasts that this one included, that give you all this information. Uh, look at look at me, right? I'm doing this podcast. Am I at my local library reading to little kids? Uh, maybe I will. Maybe in a month I will be. But am, am I the one that's going to these local... Am I running for local election? Am I... I can't do all the stuff that I even suggest on this podcast. I try to do what I can. Uh, I'm involved with a local campus. I was just there on Tuesday at the Culinary Institute. I, um, we were talking about evangelism, had a great little discussion. I've been involved in discipleship there. I, um, I'm planning the retreat this weekend. I mean, my time's gone now. I mean, that's, that's it, right? I'm doing all the music this weekend. I mean, planning a retreat. Oh my goodness. Way more involved than I thought. So I get it. And don't feel guilty, please. If you can't make all the, if you can't do all this stuff, here's my point though. When Muslim dads also have these barriers, I would think. So do Jewish dads, so do secular, well, the ones that are dads. I mean, they have to live, they have to make a living. And I understand for certain demographics, like if you're, if the homosexual uh, people who don't have kids, I mean, that frees up a lot of time, right? So I, I get it. There, there are some advantages some of these groups have, but most of them still have constraints on them. And it's not like every single dad in the community shows up to protest drag queen story hour or sexually explicit material in schools, but enough of them should, right? So many of these events for, with Moms for Liberty, and when you look at the room, it's, it's women. I'm just saying, there's, women also have constraints. So I don't, why is that? It's lopsided. So, but if you're a dad who's got a lot going on, you just don't have time for this, don't feel guilty. I mean, you have your priorities. And you got to see to it that your family's taken care of first and foremost. Um, Tea Party USA has a wide range of speakers. Eric Metaxas, Victor. Yes, I know. I know. They're, well, that's why I, I don't know how to. They're not a big, big 10 because they're not going to include people. In my, they're not going to include paleoconservatives. Like Chronicles Magazine people aren't going to be at a Tea Party event. I don't think. At least maybe I'm open to correction. You know, maybe, maybe Paul Gottfried has been at a Tea Party event or, uh, you know, one of one of the other guys that writes for them, but they're, in my opinion, they're they're, they're neocons mostly and libertarians and stuff, and uh, so, and and also, okay, I haven't been at a Tea Party USA event. I've just seen their booths. I've seen their, you know, club chapters. They had one at Liberty University and stuff. I get the impression though. Someone correct me if I'm wrong. Aren't they? Isn't it a lot of women or, or young women, especially at those events as well? Like, like if you had to put a percentage on it for the audience, how many are young women versus men? And and this is not. It's fine if you have young women. I'm just I'm not saying that's wrong, but in order there, I believe for for there to be real momentum, I think, and not just events. Events are good, but to have real, like, momentum in a community, 
I, I do believe the men have to be involved. Biblically, that's how it works. They're the leaders. But I think just even to have a lasting presence, you need men involved. I'm just wondering to what extent, if someone could answer that, if you've been to Tea Party events, is it lopsided towards women? It seems like it caters more towards women in my mind. It's not something I've ever been attracted to going to either. Uh, at the events that I've seen, at least. I'm just like, eh, I mean, what? Um, I don't know. I, I just, I would much rather, I, again, I'm doing the retreat this week, and I'd rather be in the woods, you know, chopping wood with a flannel shirt on and enjoying the fire with my guys. You know, that's kind of, and I think most guys are like that, but maybe, maybe not. All right. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Let's see uh, who else is commenting here. Yeah, I'm glad some of you are optimistic. That's good. Someone's posting a tweet. Jesus was not American. Yeah. Right. I don't, I know. I don't know what. Agreed. He wasn't. He was Jewish. Okay. That's a fair critique of boomers, writes uh, Kirk, but they're also largely pre-mill in their mindset. The world is supposed to get worse. Yeah, and that might factor in to some extent. I'm not. I'm open to that. I don't think that's really it, though. I, I don't think that's the main re thing because the people who are involved today, uh, generationally, and, and I do know there's an, an uptick in post-mill and all that, but it's it cuts across eschatology. I've made this point forever, but it cuts across eschatology. It really does. Like, People who are pre-mill versus post-mill versus on-mill who are millennials, who are conservative, tend to just be more aggressive, no matter what their eschatological stripe. Uh, if you look at a lot of boomers, though, honestly, who were probably the most active in preserving Christian morality in the United States, it's pre-millennialists. It's Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson and the religious right of the 80s and 90s. It's, it's interesting to me that that's the case, but... Uh, but there, there could be a, an element to this. I think there's something else going on, though. Uh, I, and I think, well, I don't want to get into it now. I'm going to have to do a whole video on this at some point. <laughs> boomers got us into this mess. <laughs> well, you could say that the greatest generation did, right? They raised the boomers and uh, and had this safety consciousness and, and uh, get, spoiled them to some extent and listened to doc, what Dr. Spock said about raising kids. All right. Let's uh, move on now. Let's talk about, where are we going here? Let's see here. Number of other stories that I wanted to get to today. Uh, okay, we'll start. We'll start here. All right. This is an article from Russell Moore and Andrew Walker. And this is, at this time, they were both at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And I'm not going to tell you the date yet. Well, some of you can see it. <laughs> well, those who are listening can't. What should Christians think of governments that criminalize homosexuality? Hmm. That's a good question. Well, I would say that in generations past, in the United States, I don't have all the figures in front of me, but the founders would have lived in an environment where this was simply, it was deemed immoral, and the civil magistrate did enforce penalties against homosexuality. Uh, Washington did in his army. I mean, this was, there were blasphemy laws at that time in official state churches in most of the states. So, you know, different, the dark ages, right? Well, anyway, good question. A lot of Christians would think in the past would have thought, yes, homosexuality should be criminalized, but not Russell Moore and Andrew Walker. And I'm going to give you their reasoning. Uh, they featured, uh, they, they talk about an article in the New York Times and um, it's, it talks about Uganda and how it treats homosexuality in some Islamic regimes and Vladimir Putin, who is pro-family values uh, because of his disapproval of homosexuality, it says. So how should Christians think and speak about such laws? As evangelical Christians, we believe that the Catholic and Orthodox Church has always, and they're, they're not saying Roman Catholic, just so you know, has always and everywhere believed that sexuality is to be expressed only within the marriage of a man and a woman. At the same time, we believe laws criminalizing homosexual activity to be unjust. Wait, hold on. Whoa. Laws criminalizing homosexuality are unjust. According to Andrew Walker and Russell Moore. 
And not only that, they're an affront to the image of God embedded in all persons. Would we say that about pedophilia? Would we say that about what sins, what sexual deviancies? Would we say that about adultery? Maybe they would. I don't know. Uh, our opposition to imprisonment and execution of gay and lesbian persons around the world isn't because we think, with the American sexual revolution, that governments have no interest in the stability of the family. To the contrary, statecraft is quite often soulcraft. Now, I have to say something here. Laws criminalizing homosexual behavior, I think, would be broader than just, they give two examples, imprisonment and execution. So, but the principle they're working off of is no laws criminalizing it whatsoever. To this end, though, we believe a nation can teach a positive truth in its laws about marriage um, without prohibiting and targeting its opposite. So, okay, I guess you can incentivize marriage. Our government has too often ignored uh, the function of the state through failed policies emanating from a no-fault divorce, among others. Moreover, we sharply dissent from the use of state power. There it is. There it is. It's exactly what I'm talking about. When the Muslims and the, and the atheists even, they can go and, and just, they will wield state power. But here's what the Christians have been saying in the top echelons for now decades. We sharply dissent from the use of state power, as we've seen in American life in recent days, to coerce the consciences of persons, whether Christians, Muslims, Jewish, or what have you, or participate in weddings or celebrations of unions we believe to be violations of our consciences. Now, let me just cut through. I'm not going to read the rest of this. Let me give you the main argument that they're giving. This is a principal pluralism argument. This is what I was taught in seminary. It was, it was taught aggressively. And it's the idea that there's a neutral public square. And the home, and, and it's just about every time it's brought up, it's, it's sexual anarchists versus Christians. And if we could just have a neutral public square, they could both get along. We could respect one another. And what they don't realize, it's incredibly naive to an extent that I have a hard time understanding how people could be this naive. What they don't understand is that the left is totalitarian. And there is no neutral public square for them. And we've seen this now since when this article was written. And the article was written in 2014. 2014. March 3rd. Now, you might say, John, that's eight years ago. Uh, why are you talking about it now? Well, a few reasons. To show you that this mentality has been around for, this isn't new, okay? And secondly, there's been a pivot. There's been a pivot. Now, Russell Moore probably still agrees with this. Andrew Walker, I don't know. Andrew Walker is the one that uh, JD that gave J.D. Greer the idea. Well, according to J.D. Greer, he cited Andrew Walker for his use of pronoun hospitality and using preferred pronouns. And now, from what I understand, Andrew, I don't know if he said it publicly. Andrew Walker, though, doesn't, uh, he, he doesn't believe those things. But, and it's, looks people make mistakes. I get it. I get it. But you got to come out with stuff like this. You got to come out and you got to say, look, I was wrong. I was way wrong about that. Uh, this is the kind of thinking that will not survive the rise of a new generation of Christian conservative leaders. And, and I'm talking about the Christian nationalist types. They're not going to buy into this. And rightly so, because this isn't even biblical. This isn't, this is just, it, it, it what verses are they appealing to here? I'm just curious. Uh, the Bible tells us what God has given authority to the state to maintain, order, and carry out punishment of wrongdoers by the sword. Clearly, wrongdoers here isn't equated with sinners. Well, yeah, no. I, I mean, it's there There are different categories of sin, and anyone who does Bible study knows this. Uh, but there, there are public sins that uh, throughout Christian history, and by the way, tradition does matter in this. It doesn't mean that our authority is tradition, uh, our final authority. It just means that tradition... Uh, is it rightly practiced or rightly uh, applied. Tradition is the wisdom of the past. Principles applied through various circumstances. And we can look back on 2,000 years and we can see that sexual, se se sexual sin has been punished. Not, it's not just incentives. It has been punished in Christian societies. 
The police power of the state is set up to maintain public safety and order according to the principles of public justice. Everywhere in the New Testament, the mission of confronting personal sin is given to the church and not the state. It, it, it's it's a uh, it's using Bible verses to try to forward their argument, but it's these uh, they use First Corinthians five. Uh, the Apostle Paul says, for what do I have to do with judging others? Is it not those inside the church uh, whom you are to judge? Well, I guess that's a good argument for no Christian laws, right? Of course, that's not what Paul was saying. This is insulting to our intelligence to read this kind of thing. Uh, morality is, there is going to be a, a morality of some kind that the public magistrate has to apply. There's no option. You have to. A traffic light is a morality issue because do we value human life or not? That's the issue, right? And we've just set up uh, systems to uh, make sure that we do value human life. But they're going to have to work off of some moral framework to make any decision. And it, it doesn't mean that you can't negotiate, that you can't. I mean, look, politics is the many ways the art of negotiation. But uh, you're as, as someone who's, this, this is the thing I'd be curious about. If someone goes to their church and let's say wins the election, they're the governor of of Kentucky or the president of the United States. Is he going to be going to them for advice? How do I become a Christian public magistrate? What laws should I sign? What laws should I push for? What laws should I enforce? It's going to be hard for someone with this thinking because it's a constant retreat from in the public square from what was there before. The Christian society that once existed, it's constantly retreating. And it's like, well, of course, we need to punish murderers, but I don't know about people who are homosexual. We, we can't have any punishment against them. We can't have any punishment against anyone who uh, violates the the uh, uh, the uh, agreement that they, they made, the covenant that they made with their wife. Uh, no, no punishment there. Uh, so wh where do you draw the line is the question because they're, what the arguments they're using could be a blank check for someone to just say the seculars. It's actually a dream for them. Hey, no public morality, no Christian morality. So there, there really isn't much of a biblical argument that I'm seeing in this article. It's an assumption that the public square should remain neutral, and and it's it's uh, I think something again. We talked about the boomers earlier, but the baby boomers I think just kind of assume this, and you only have the luxury of that. In a society that has restraints already, that self-government exists, uh, that uh, it's generally Christian already, that stuff is already broken up. We don't have that world anymore. And so this kind of uh, approach, this assumption that the other side, the sexual anarchists, will just respect our ability to practice our faith is, is naive. It just doesn't work. And we've seen that now over and over and over that it doesn't work. And I think this is going to be causing a lot of people, these circumstances, to rethink, probably too late in some ways, ways but they're rethinking this. And I think that's uh, a very good thing. So was God, here's the main question, we'll cap it with this. Was God, in the Old Testament, when he laid down the law, and he punished all kinds of sexual deviancies, was he immoral? I mean, was he, what, what do they say in this? That, uh, that it's, I'm trying to look for the exact phrase here. They say that it challenges the image of God in people, that it's an affront to him. Was God affronting himself when he implemented laws that are harsher than Vladimir Putin against many of these things? I don't think so. I think God was, is the standard of righteousness. His character is what we build right our laws um they, they actually flows from uh, our laws flow from his character or they ought to so th this is horribly problematic to pick a word the left likes to use problematic and it's it's not going to fly today though as much i think this this rationality that this kind of thinking is is going out and i'm glad for that all right what else uh let's talk about this world magazine identity crisis ascendant gender ideology undermines group trying to balance homosexuality and biblical orthodoxy actually this is all about revoice and i'm actually not sure i want to talk about this today uh we've talked about revoice before i'm not sure i have much to offer so i'm wondering why i put this in the list but uh i think the main point i probably just wanted to make here was that revoice is also right on top of a fault line they're forced into 
that you can't remain on this fault line for a long period of time. It's temporary at best. So the people that are trying to find a middle way between uh, sexual anarchy and Christianity are just not going to be able to do it. They're going to fall to one side or the other because this will never satisfy the people protesting at these college campuses. They're going to look at Revoice and they're going to say, well, they're haters just like everyone else because they, they say that you shouldn't physically uh, work, fulfill those desires. And they, they say, well, no, 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 no. We're saying that um, you know, gay culture's fine. Uh, we might even be fine with Drag Queen Story Hour. Who knows? Uh, but having homosexual desires, that's okay. It's just don't act on it. Well, that would still be seen as homophobia. So uh, that's, I think, why I had that up. Uh, let's see. What else? All right. Two final things I had just in the queue. This has been there actually for a while, since October 10th. South Carolina Church places youth pastor on leave after I love hot youth pastors sticker incident. Now I looked at this. This guy's a Southeastern grad, and I'm like, oh, man. That's where I went. Uh, and here's why I wanted to talk about it, though. This is the interesting thing to me. All right, check this out. Here's the story. Basically, this 35-year-old guy decides. I'm not even going to say his name. It doesn't, doesn't matter. The guy doesn't need to be... He, he doesn't need to be shamed more than he already is. But he had this, he's a youth pastor. This is how youth, youth ministry has been like this for a long time in many churches. It's silly. And he had a silly idea. And he handed out these stickers. I don't know why. Maybe he thought this was an evangelistic opportunity somehow that it would really spark conversation. I have no clue. But he gave this out, I guess, to some people in his youth group. And that was it. There's no other evidence of anything else as far as we know. Now, this is on um, this is on a, a website that called the Roy's Report, uh, and it's, it's a smaller blog. But I, the reason I wanted to share this was because of who's quoted in it. So, uh, it's someone from Revoice, or not Revoice, sorry, Caringwell, Caringwell, <laughs> very different organizations, and uh, so it says attorney uh, Boz Tavidian of Boz Law, a law firm that represents abuse victims in civil lawsuits. And he's he's right in there with the revoice. How do I keep saying revoice? Caring well stuff. I don't know why I associate these two. Anyway, he told the Roy's report that this gentleman's uh, response raised some red flags. Now, I listened to the church. Someone recorded the church basically saying, look, please don't go share this with, with the media. Please don't share this on social media. Please, if you have a question, come to us. We are investigating this. We are taking care of this. We we, we don't need, I mean, it's, it literally, it's just these bumper stickers, okay? So there's an assumption behind this. I want you to see if you can find what it is. The way I was hearing it, the fact that if it offended some people seems to be the only reason they are investigating this. When a person who has been handed responsibility from the church to oversee care and discipleship of minors is handing out a sticker like this, it shows horrible discernment and judgment at the very best. Davidian added that investigations uh, like these should be conducted by an independent third party that understands abuse issues. To me, the main concern is whether this gentleman has a history of this behavior, Davidian said, though he noted other questions like, did he uh, have these made? Not that I'm looking, but I've never seen these stickers for sale anywhere. And, and so, uh, let's see, what else does he say? Uh, has he ever had these issues before? We don't know. We're left with their plans to do an investigation, and that's about it. This needs to be much more defined to the public than it has been so far. And talks about how concerning this is. Uh, he comes across seemingly irritated at social media rather than thanking social media for informing him of something so troubling about one of his pastors. Because the pastor said, please don't go sharing about this on social media. He's in trouble. That was, that's not being uh, very forthright. Uh, it, it's, it's hiding something, perhaps. All right, let's, let's, uh, let's just analyze this now. That's all we need to know about this supposed story. What does this reveal to you about someone who's, who's big into the caring well stuff, influential there. What does it reveal? There's an assumption here. The assumption is that in private church matters, what we would have considered private church matters up to five seconds ago, issue, pastoral issues that are being dealt with, uh, whatever. We are now to understand that one must 
subject themselves to a social media scrutiny in order to actually be authentic, genuine, truly repentant. There's no privacy in this process. And the church is not able to handle these things. It must be an outside investigator that comes in. So it must be public. It must be subject yourself to the comments from social media. In fact, you must welcome that. And you must have outsiders, an outside firm, come in and do this investigative work. And I just kept thinking as I was looking at this. Someone sent it to me and just said, what is this? And I said, look, in my head, it's a disregard for the idea that the saints truly will judge the world. That the way things have, that have been done for centuries, where, and what is this? This is a goofy little incident. Oh, it's not little to me. I go to that. Okay, well, it's big to you if you're at that church, maybe, to some extent. But it's still, it just shows what? Great immaturity. Why is the guy a pastor? There's probably bigger problems at a church where they're hiring a pastor like that, I would think. But it's a goofy, silly, stupid, if you want to say that, foolish thing that happened. He didn't go and, uh, and there's just no evidence that we know of that he's abusing minors, that he's all, any of the things that I know of that have been covered up in prominent Southern Baptist churches using the caring well stuff, which is, that's fascinating to me how that works. Um, no, it's, it's this little goofy thing. And now he's supposed to open his underwear drawer for everyone to sift through to make sure he hasn't done anything else. This is insane. This is absolutely insane. There is a hierarchy now beyond the church called the social media mob and professional psychologists and counselors and lawyers that that someone's that pastors are now just supposed to subject themselves to upon the most minor infraction even. And it's it's frankly insulting to why why even have a pastor then? What's the point? It's an obsolete office. Clearly they're not able to handle this. They just keep watch over our souls, provide counseling have to go through a supposedly <laughs> they should at least go through a rigorous process of proving themselves and once they get to the point of being a pastor guess what they're not even equipped to handle uh a and this he's, he's not even a, what is he what did it say a, a, a student pastor or something they're not even able to handle an employee another uh, pastor that does some really immature things they can't handle that in-house and they say that they don't want the social media drama because guess what there's a lot of pressure that comes from that it's unnecessary sometimes. They're not even allowed to apply that wisdom. Now, here's the thing, because someone might say, well, John, you talk a lot about, you just did in this podcast, about other ministries and people. Yeah, when, when they publicly share things, when they're publicly advocating for things, when, they're, uh, when they fail to repent of things, when they're, especially when it's parachurch organizations, I'm not even talking about pastors. Most of what I talk about is parachurch stuff. When they're, uh, trying to hide things that uh, trainings they're doing or whatever. Sure, yeah, I talk about it with the hope that they'll repent, that they'll stop. Uh, that is much different. I what what I'm not doing is going to a to a church that has a private matter. Uh, that this isn't um, now. You might say maybe bumper stickers on cars. That's not so private, but they wouldn't have known where the bumper stickers came from and so forth. This is. This is something that was, it was, uh, from my understanding at least, someone outed this pastor that he was doing this. And and this is such a small, on, on the scale of things to care about, it's very small, uh, private matter in a church. I'm not going to them and being like, let's blow the whistle on this and research everything about everyone there in leadership. And uh, let's make, let, let's just assume guilt, presume guilt that they're probably guilty of other things. Let's just cast that aspersion on them. And, and when after the leaders have admitted how wrong it is and said that they're going to do something about it, it's very different than talking about public things that people aren't admitting are wrong, right? So if you're admitting it's wrong and you're taking care of it and you're exercising spiritual leadership here, then why keep, what's the point of continuing to exacerbate the issue and agitate? That's the concern I have with the caring well stuff. And it, what it does is it creates so much timidity, so much, people are so scared they're going to misstep. People are so afraid of online mobs 
that it, it just prevents, I think it prevents a barrier. It, it puts a barrier up to some extent. People, people don't want that hassle. If that's what ministry is, you know, I have to play to Twitter. Why would I want to be in ministry? It also just, like I said, devalues, I think, the office of pastor. And, uh, and that's what we're seeing more and more and more and more of. It's the diminishment of what a pastoral role should be. And it's the, um, it's the rise of psychologists, lawyers, and professionals, not to mention your, <laughs> your, your uncle and your, uh, you know, your brother-in-law on social media and, and what they're going to say. So I wanted to highlight that trend. That trend, though, I think th this is not something that uh, the group I talked to you about earlier, the, the, the group I'm encouraged by, these sort of young conservative millennials in, in evangelicalism, they're not, they're not going to go for this, I think. They're, they're just, I, I think this is not going to work in, in the newer institutions that I think have yet to be formed, many of them. All right, last issue here, last item. Uh, the pastors and elders in the SBC churches and professors in SBC seminaries are welcome to sign this. I'll try to remember to put the link in the info section. This is from, uh, or to, the SBC Executive Committee in Nashville. And it is from, let's see, number of signed it. Well, Tom Askell signed it. Mike Law, but a bunch of people. Joe Wrigley. Okay, so this is, a, this is a, I think this is a resolution, a suggested resolution, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, it says, Dear SBC Executive Committee, someone sent this to me. My name is Mike Law. I have the privilege of serving as a pastor of Arlington Baptist Church in Arlington, Virginia. Thank you for your labors in serving Christ, Southern Baptists around the world. I write concerning my motion to amend the SBC Constitution. Sorry, my bad. Not a resolution amending the SBC Constitution, to include an enumerated sixth item under Article 3, Paragraph 1, concerning composition, as offered and referred to you at this past June's annual meeting. Personally, uh, and, and here it is, uh, it, it's, it's, so there's context missing here, but does not affirm, or yeah, does not affirm, appoint or employ a pastor as a, pa a woman as a pastor of any kind. Uh, so this is language to add to the Constitution to clarify things. Personally, I felt the need to offer this amendment because, listen to this, five Southern Baptist churches roughly within a five-mile radius of my own congregation are employing women as pastors of various kinds, including women serving as senior pastor. All right. <laughs> he makes his argument. The whole issue with this the reason this is something I wanted to highlight is because he's saying, look, the, what we keep hearing is that it's not a big deal. This isn't really happening. There's a few isolated cases. Rick Warren's church, they're not even, they just use the title pastor. They're not really pastors. Conservatives are just blowing this out of proportion. This women pastor issue in the SBC. SBC statement of faith is against this, but uh, now there's an attempt to clarify. Let's Let's clarify it because guess what? Within a five-mile radius of my church, there's five. They're in SBC churches. And it's, I mean, I just remember earlier this year, I was researching something unrelated to this issue. And I came across an SBC church on the SBC website with women pastors. And I was like, how, how, how many churches are like that in the Southern Baptist Convention? I don't know. But it's a problem. Now, it could be, this is my benefit of the doubt. It could be that, the way society is changing, this is just happening so much that the credentials committee can't keep up with it. Now, that's a hard pill to swallow since you saw what the credentials committee did last year in defending Rick Warren and the pastors at his church that were ordained women. But uh, it's, it's not necessarily something that is by design, necessarily. On that vote, actually, I probably should have pulled this up. I just... Uh, <laughs> Someone I shall not name sent this to me. Let's see if I can uh, find it here. All right. This is from a professor at Southern Seminary. And um, Abraham, uh, I think it's Kruavila. And I don't think this is all by design in the curriculums necessarily. You know, they're, they're coming out of seminary just thinking women pastors are okay. But some of it, Sometimes these halfway measures are leading, or at least justifying, I think, in some students' mind, women pastors. This is a manual for preaching by a professor at Southern Seminary. Now, this professor that I just mentioned 
is, uh, and, and in fact, here maybe maybe I can show you. I can't pull it up right now on the camera, but maybe I can uh, show you. It's uh, on page 178 of a manual for preachers. So there it is. And here's what it says. It's about preachers. The other day, a student in my class began her sermon with failed, we failed miserably. That certainly perked up our ears. She went on to describe a church planning experience she and her husband were involved in that had ended unsuccessfully. Now, you say that's a little thing gone. Yeah, sure. Okay. But I don't know if this was at Southern Seminary. I don't know where this was that this happened. But this is a professor at Southern Seminary and has females in his preaching class. And using that, her sermon, I guess, as a positive example for his book. So, I don't know. I mean, it, when you read stuff like that, you tend to think that, well, that sounds like there's some approval there. It's not, like, it's not extremely overt at all. It's just very passive. But how much of that stuff is going on is the question. And, and at Southeastern, I know it was this soft, gentle complementarianism, uh, Danny Aiken would call it. Gent, no, he called it a gentler, kinder complementarianism that he, he would allow, he said, Lottie Moon to preach. You know, he, he would allow her to preach. She could preach, but not for normal Sundays, not, not in like every Sunday, but for a special Sunday or something. It's like, it, there's just no consistency. That, that's the hard thing. And so when you don't have that sure foundation, then you're going to have students that tend to do their own thing and just go along with what the cultures or the what the world is uh, teaching. So anyway... Uh, I, I say good for Mike Law at Arlington Baptist Church for calling attention to this and for just revealing within a five-mile radius what's happening in his neck of the woods. Because frankly, if this keeps happening, if this just becomes disregarded, what other items that the Southern Baptist Convention believes in in their doctrinal statement are also going to be disregarded? That's the question. All right, well, that was it for today as far as uh, the items uh, to talk about. Uh, I'm just going to go through some comments See if there's anything, any questions y'all had. Uh, <laughs> some of these questions, some of, some of these comments, I don't quite understand. I think I'm missing context. Um, Flee to the mountain. You are a nation to yourself. Well, the bunker mentality. Someone asked this the other day. Should we run or should we fight? And how do you know the difference? I'm like, that does take discernment sometimes. I do believe that it would be good to find, if at all possible, everyone's situation is different. Here I am sitting in upstate New York. <laughs> Pray for me. But if uh, if you're looking to move, uh, my brother's actually moving like next week to Tennessee, which I think is going to be a lot more, uh, or I should say at least less progressive than New York. But Tennessee's being overrun. That's the problem. It's being overrun, especially Nashville. I was there earlier this year by leftists from California. And it's so sad to me to see these southern states in particular uh, just – states that have been conservative for so long politically completely changing in the matter of a few years. And I think Tennessee is honestly it, – it's a fight if you're there. But would I necessarily recommend someone move there? I don't know. I don't know. A few years ago, I would have seen it as kind of an option. Now, I don't know. I'm kind of, I, I don't see it, I, I, it doesn't cross my mind as an option uh, anymore. It used to. It doesn't now. And um, I'll tell you, just, this is free advice here, but some of the states that cross my mind as options, if you're going to move within the United States, Idaho, and I have reasons for that, don't tell California. I know California is still moving there, but not a lot of leftists know how beautiful Idaho is. Don't tell them. Uh, Idaho is, uh, I think, definitely an option. I see, in some ways, in some ways, I see Utah as somewhat of an option. Um, now, you're going to deal with Mormons there, uh, but it's de depending on what you're looking for. Um, I think some of the deep southern states like Mississippi, Alabama, they're not going to go. I mean, everywhere's changing, but they're not going to be like the, the northerners aren't moving in there. West Coast people aren't moving in there in large numbers at all. Uh, Alaska is probably an option. Um, I don't see Texas as much of an option. I don't see North Carolina as much of an option. I don't see Virginia as much of an option anymore. I mean, I've lived in Virginia, North Carolina. Uh, South Carolina is on the fence. I don't see them as, I, I see them kind of with Tennessee. So I've thought through this a lot. 
maybe for an episode, I'll give you all the stats and stuff on these things. But I do think we do need to start thinking about where we're going to plant ourselves. And that's just wisdom. I mean, look, Jesus, Jesus went through the crowd sometimes to avoid, uh, at times, confrontations that, or when they were seeking to kill him. <laughs> so it's not wrong. I don't think it's always wrong to run. It doesn't mean you're a coward. It means you're being strategic and you're trying to find a place where you can uh, maintain your, your uh, convictions and raise your children, fulfill the responsibilities God's given you in a, in a better way. It's very hard in New York. It's very hard in California. It, extremely hard, actually, depending on where you are. So there's some, some free advice on that for anyone who is wondering. <laughs> my ignorance is showing. I think it's my, my ignorance. I don't know. Okay. Well, uh, sorry. <laughs> uh, I used to vote. Not anymore. I cannot vote for wicked unbelievers who have ungodly views. Oof, this is a big topic. We're not going to get there this time in this episode, but I do think you should vote. I do think that. Uh, I, and I understand, I understand the discouragement, especially since 2020, but I think you should, you should still vote. All right. I don't see many questions. A lot of, uh, comments, but, um, I appreciate everyone who streamed today. Um, <laughs> we don't want them moving to Alabama. All right. Yes. Yes. Don't move to Alabama either. Stay out of Alabama. If you're, uh, if you're on the left, <laughs> Yes, someone said, someone confirmed, I'm in Tennessee, we are concerned about the liberals coming our way. I know, I know, I have a brother-in-law who just went to Nashville like three years ago, and he's already saying, I can't live in this place, like I gotta move out farther uh, because of what's going on. It's not even safe. When these policies get enacted, it's not safe. And and like Memphis isn't even an option. I mean, so, um, <laughs> stay away from Iowa unless invited. You know, Iowa's one. Yeah, you know what, Iowa? We could put Iowa, and I think we could put Nebraska to some extent. Ben Sass is gone. Uh, we could put Oklahoma, I think, on this list. I think Missouri, um, maybe South Dakota, definitely North Dakota. And I, I don't know. I got to do more research on Montana. I know there's some things going on in Montana and um, Wyoming. A lot of people moving in, raising up prices and stuff. But I think those are other states you can consider. I think the most conservative state, if I'm not mistaken, is Oklahoma. I know Kansas is pretty red, but I know they're they're different. They're they're a different kind of conservative, from what I understand. And Oklahoma, still pretty conservative. So, but you know, you gotta you gotta think about a lot of factors when you're doing that. Um, do you want to be landlocked? You know, I think about these things. I'm weird, but uh, all right. Well, uh, God bless everyone. I'm so grateful for all of your support and. Uh, and uh, looking forward to seeing everyone who's coming to the men's retreat and uh, more coming. Bye now.